if there is no annihilationism at the end of this, if there is no point to where you cease to exist and God gets rid of you as this, whatever this is that Lewis is talking about, then I would say that those in hell are so unrecognizable that we won't even be able to realize what's what's going on. They'll be so disassociated and so degenerated from the image of God that they will be something else entirely. King commies, look out, tell them, look out for my worldview. Cloudy when you sinking, got you thinking it's a whirlpool. Caesar in your pockets, you can't see who's in your pockets. But Stevie's inner visions touch your eyes and make the world move. Wifey bob her head and make her curls move. Crown jewel is character, and this ain't immortality with fairy dust. Never land, never say I okay. never gave you well, hands. Okay, well, Daniel, how does it feel to be the unofficial co-host of this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> um, pretty good, I guess. Uh, it's been it's been really fun. I've thoroughly enjoyed um, every every time we've gotten to talk. Me too. Yeah, definitely. And then uh, the Jonah one, which I just finished editing, which I will upload uh, soon, uh, was probably one of my favorites of the podcast so far. That was super interesting, and. I think very applicable. See, it's actually something I was talking to my pastor about uh, on Sunday after church because we're we're in a short like two-parter right now about uh, divine forgiveness and the nature of God's forgiveness. Yeah, um, that applies. And so that I was like talking about for isn't it? And this next week or this coming Sunday, we're going to be discussing uh, how do we respond to God's divine forgiveness, and mm-hmm. then how should that impact how we conduct ourselves and so i asked him after church i was like please tell me you're gonna bring up jonah and he was like maybe i think i have because he's already written his sermon he was like i think i have a passing reference to minor prophets Uh, but he was like if you know if we discuss during church which is what we do because like 40 people in the coffee shop yeah then like i can maybe omit it and then you can bring it up so we'll see what happens yeah good luck let me know how it goes yeah, Jonah, the the teaching that I've been working on on Jonah and the way that relates to Jesus and the context of you know the ancient Near East and their mythologies or their understandings of the world, I think is the most one of the most applicable things that I've formulated as a teaching so far. Yeah. Something really interesting. Jeremy said, my pastor, that I've been like mulling, that I've been mulling over since Sunday is, and apparently he repeats this a lot, and I haven't heard him say it recently, um, but that if you take Jesus's words seriously about loving your enemy, you basically omit the category of enemy. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. And I thought that, I've, I was like, I have to think about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that gets into Jesus' whole, um, you know, who is my neighbor and the Samaritan, which we've already talked about. But um, yeah, it's, he goes, he pushes that envelope a lot further than any other rabbinic teacher before him was willing to. Yeah. Which is quite amazing. Yeah, it is. And it's very uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I said this in my intro to that episode, but and I think I might have said it at the end of, the, of, of our of our conversation. But if you're reading Jesus and he isn't making you uncomfortable, then you're not reading Jesus. Oh, absolutely. If you um, and I was just listening to the last video you posted of us just to go through and see what I may have missed or um, stuff like that. And something that we were talking about was how um, if you're reading the Bible and it's not changing who you are, mm -hmm. and that means that it's not teaching you new things, it's not changing the way you think about the world and it, um, it's not changing the way you behave, then you're, you're not doing a good job of reading the Bible. Yeah. Because we all have room to grow and it's one of the most profound I would argue the most profound collection of works in existence. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right. Well, to get to, we have two things that we've been talking about that we want to discuss this week. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> two very uh, small topics. Yeah. Just, you know, sin and hell. Um, Those little things. And uh, if some of you didn't already think I was a heretic, well, you might definitely think I am after this episode, but that's okay. I'm just trying to follow the text. Contradicting the great St. Augustine. Yeah, very much so. Uh, do not agree with the man, at least on his conception of original sin. Uh, yeah, so, I mean... Yeah, there's a bunch of things where I don't fall in line with orthodoxy. And what we're talking about today is great examples of that. Uh, this, I will say to preface all of this in, in light of staying humble. Yeah. I, I am more, con okay, I probably hold these about equally in my head at this moment, as in like my conviction and, and, uh, how much I'm convinced of these views being, being true. Yeah. Um, but I am more than willing to be wrong. Um, I just think there's, and I'll talk about this when, when we discuss both of them, but I think there's just big hurdle questions that these seem to be good at answering, seem to get at answering and be better at answering than the, uh, the largely traditional view that I am poking at. Yeah. Um, so, and I, and I, uh, also full disclosure, like, like I've said before, I'm the biggest theological leech, uh, especially of Michael Heiser right now. So this whole view of, uh, original sin, I'm actually stealing from, and I will post this as I, as I did at the end of this, uh, document, I'm going to be reading a little bit from, uh, he has a 12 part blog series on wow. Romans 512. And then a whole video where he responds in a QA and a podcast about this, where he's like condensing the blog um, material. So I will link both of those in the show notes here. And then, uh, so yeah, he's like also modifying an, uh, a Wesleyan view of sin, which I really like. So I will, I can also link a paper about Wesley's view of sin that I found. Um, and Pete ends is on the same train when he's talking about Adam as it relates to Jesus in this nature. So I am not alone, you know, and you have someone like Heiser and um, Wesley who are much more conservative and then Pete, who's a more liberal person. Yeah. Um, all kind of on this train. So like, you know, 
Uh, I'm taking those ideas and I think they're some of the best ideas I've read about sin. I think they fix some problems that uh, the traditional view of original sin has. And then for our conversation about hell, I'm, um, I'll, I'll phrase it in, in, in a certain way when we get there. I kind of want to keep that, my phrase for it secret to like, it's a bit of a shocker. Uh, yeah. It's meant to be. Um, but I'm, I'm taking and modifying a lot of Lewis ideas about hell mm-hmm. um, and a view that is held by, at some level, by a lot of New Testament scholars. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm not, like, these aren't my, I've, I've never had a theologically original thought. So, Well, and to, to your point of holding ideas loosely, have, are you familiar with uh, Greg Boyd's concept of concentric circle theologies? No. So um, I, believe, I believe this was a Greg Boyd idea, um, but he talks about how um, we oftentimes construct our theologies as a house of cards. Mm-hmm. And so you remove one card from that house and the whole thing comes crumbling down, right? Um, so if you remove one traditionalist view of hell or one traditionalist view of sin or, um, you know, a typical Trinitarian theology, you ruin the entire house that you've spent your whole Christian walk constructing. Um, he says that that's a very, um, what's the word he used? I'll just put words in his mouth. That's a very inefficient and unstable way to build a theology. And so um, I don't think he used those words, but that's the word. That's how I'll classify it. Yeah. Uh, He said, what's a better way of building a theology and how I think I see you and I building our theologies is um, different grades of concentric circles. So circles within circles. Mm -hmm. And the closer you get to the center circle, the more tightly we hold that idea. So something that might be in my inner circle is um, when Jesus says, responds to the question, what is the greatest commandment? And the answer is the Shema and the love of neighbor. And so I think that would be something that's in my inner circle. Whereas my conception of sin and my conception of hell those are not necessarily in my innermost circle, but in one of the other circles. And the closer you get to the edge, the less tight you hold that view. Um, and so the, the more willing you are to sway on it. And it also sort of comes down to, you know, what do we define as Christian or not? Um, what we define as Christian fundamentally should be closer to our innermost circle, whereas Mm -hmm. things that we think are debatable among Christians, we can place in those looser circles that we are willing to go one way or the other on if given enough evidence. So, yeah, and keep in mind, um, and as we talk, this is kind of a good preface, like, I, I was someone who was raised in a much more like a pretty conservative upbringing also being like a baptist and a baptist mission organization helps that yeah uh but i am uncomfortably pushing on certain ideas i was raised with within conservatism or fundamentalism so this hasn't been it's not like i'm getting a kick out of 
mm-hmm. tearing down my or my like long held conceptions of hell or of sin. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just find these way more compelling. So, yeah, well, um, your conception of hell specifically, mm-hmm. I find in incredibly compelling not necessarily that i even agree with it i haven't been given enough time to to weigh all of my options but i think that like you said it's it answers some key questions and some key issues and problems that i haven't been able to figure out any other way um and i i can't speak for you but hell and sin are are not in my innermost circle when it comes to that no and one of uh, what i was going to say as before I get into this, um, you know, uh, deeply, uh, one of the things in my innermost circle, probably innermost or second most inner circle, is I take the literality of a physical resurrection very seriously. And both of these views of sin and hell that I'm about to elaborate on also take that reality very very seriously when you say physical resurrection do you mean our physical resurrection or jesus physical resurrection Both, because i think to have one you this is paul's whole point about fighting narcissism right if you're going to deny a literal resurrection of christ then we have no hope for a resurrection yeah um so yeah i think those that's why paul's language about resurrection and christ's resurrection always leads to an exhortation of our eventual resurrection yeah. Um, in the last days. So, and we'll get into that when we talk about hell, obviously. Um, but yeah, I have, like, I take my Christology and his resurrection very, 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 very seriously. So. I do too. Yeah. I even mentioned to, I mean, this might sound a little bit like a slippery slope and I don't want it to be, but I mentioned to, this is why some issues I have with my other view that I can't quite answer yet, and I'll, I'll talk about them, but I, I said this to my friend John, I said, um, you know, if I'm going to take any words in the Bible the most seriously, for me, I take the words of Jesus the most seriously. Not that there's necessarily a scale, because I think it's all God's word, yeah. but I'm like, if I'm going to pay strict attention to things um, and give those my most atten- the most of my attention, going to be the words of jesus and there's some words of jesus that kind of mess with my some of my hell conceptions so like i have to i have to deal with those for real yeah. um, and i haven't i don't have answers for them yet so i'm still working on it um, but all that being said let's jump before any more prelude let's get into my view of sin yeah so to to do this right i'm going to talk about and then read a little bit from a post i made for my lessons for my systematics class and we were talking about the nature of sin and original sin. And what I'm pushing on here is the idea that is largely construed from Romans 5.12. And I'll just read the verse, and then it's going to get read again with some different emphases. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. This is also Romans um, 8. I think I have it listed here. With it on this post as well. 
here. Let me just pull it up because I think it is important to this conception. Yeah, I'm not seeing it in the doc you sent. No, it's not. Um, I'm sorry, guys. I'm, I, uh, oh, I, I mentioned it briefly. Um, what is the, um, anyway, uh, oh, it's Romans, uh, there's Romans nine passages. Uh, no, 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 no. What is the one where he, he, uh, compares Jesus and Adam? Um, Gil through Adam. Yeah. I think that's in Romans five still. Um, it looks like, no. Oh, it's just later in the passage. Okay. But the gift, uh, ah, yes. This is just the next verse. It's 13. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not sin by breaking a commandment, as did Adam, who is a pattern for the one to come. But the, the gift is not like the trespasses, verse 15. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can God's gift be compared with the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. Um, there, This is jumping to verse 18. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. Um, or just as though disobedience through the one man, the many, were many made sinners, so also through obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Okay, so these passages in Matthew, or Matthew 5, Romans 5 in the end, um, many in Augustine, who I'm about to read some quotations from, take these verses as ascribing Adamic guilt to the rest of the human race um the famous passage is uh that's also used for this is um psalm 51 where adam where adam where uh david says it's in sin my mother conceived me which i will talk about a way that you can translate that that probably makes more sense honestly um so just the basic idea that you are born a sinner and this was part of the question that was asked for class um, how would you respond to someone who says you're you don't you're not a sinner until you sin? Um, but the general conception of the um, of the traditional view is that you're born sinful, you're born a sinner, um, you're born with a sin nature, and you're born therefore you're born guilty before God, as say like a fetus or a newborn. Mm -hmm. um, this is the conception of. Humanity and humanity sinfulness. Now, I have a, I'll just read the Augustinian quote first, and then I will pose my question. I'll pose my, my problem and then pose the question of what, the big question I have of this view. And I use this Augustine quote because 
it's it was part of the reading for that week in class. Um, but the quote is this. But this grace of Christ, without which neither infant nor grown persons can be saved, is not bestowed as a reward for merit. I would agree with the second part of that statement. But is given freely, which is why it is called grace. And then in the next paragraph, Augustine defends this position, and he quotes Romans 3.23. And I will read his quotation of the verse. It says this, For all have sinned, whether in Adam or in themselves, and have fallen short of the glory of God. My first question is, do you notice anything weird or wrong with Augustine's quote of Romans 3.23? I'll read it again. For all have sinned, whether in Adam or in themselves, and have fallen short of the glory of God. Now, that probably doesn't sound like any version of Romans 3.23 that you've read because it's Augustine not. is literally adding words, yeah. right? I'll read you the quote. The quote is from ESV. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which I find to be a very true descriptive statement. But for Augustine to defend his view that he quotes in that first sentence, but this grace of Christ, without which neither infant nor grown person can be saved, is not bestowed as a reward for merit, but as the free gift given, which is why it is called grace. And again, I agree with the second statement wholeheartedly. The okay. first part about without the grace of Christ, which neither infant nor grown person can be saved. And then his quotation is, whether in Adam or in themselves. This is the language that's used a lot in the traditional view. Sin in Adam is passed on to us. Now, my question, actually, um, yeah, I'll just say this. My question that I have for that is, if we say that this is the case for humanity, post-Adam eating, why do I say it like that? Post-Adam eating from the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, which maybe that's worth a whole episode to discuss what that might mean. Um, then you have a, to posit a genuine incarnation, put it that way. And Jesus, so the incarnation is Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. Well, we have an issue with Jesus being 100% man and sinless. If all who are born of Adam, all who are born from his lineage, which if you're human, in the biblical conception, then you are. Yeah. We have a real Jesus problem, being born guilty and then somehow also being sinless. And some people take this as very trite, but I don't think it is. Because here's, here's the thing. If you push it enough, then if your conception, you, whatever concept, I'll put it this way. Whatever conception you have about the nature of sin and humanity has to work with Jesus. Otherwise, the incarnation is not real, and, uh, and therefore we have no salvation. Yeah. This is my issue with the traditional view is yeah. that you have to somehow weirdly get Jesus off the hook of being fully human, which then doesn't posit an actual incarnation. The actual humanness of Jesus is the fullness of that is gone, which then means he only saves like 75% of us. Yeah. So like, am I walking around heaven without an arm because Jesus couldn't save that arm? You know what I'm saying? It sounds ridiculous, but like, think about it for, for a couple minutes, right? Yeah. Um, it's, it's internally inconsistent which is why you then get doctrine, yes. and I know you're probably about to go here, about um, Mary being sinless too. Yes. And 
that is necessitated on this fact. And what I think is so interesting about the way church history has progressed is we haven't recognized the problem in that theology and then reframed our theology. We recognize the problem in the theology and then we created another theology about Mary in order to address it. Mm -hmm. Instead of recognizing the internal inconsistency that the theology we constructed had and recognizing the fact that we might not be reading Paul and the gospel writers correctly in the way that they're interpreting this. Right. And then the other thing that I've heard, uh, regardless of Mary in this view, which is also very problematic, is that, well, uh, Mary didn't have sex with Joseph, so, you know, that negates some of his, then you're negating some of his humanness at that point, but like, it's fine, sure, it's true, the magical conception, we believe in this, which is another weird spiritual thing we believe in that I can't explain, so I'm not trying to explain that i'm just saying the response i get when i talk about this especially with some calvinistic friends is well mary didn't have sex with joseph so that you know god can override basically the the sin and nature then in and, in christ and here's here's the issue with that view there's two big issues one you just addressed with the catholic conception of mary's divinity yeah. the other one is if you take the argument that that, that because um, because Joseph didn't have sex with her, that Jesus is somehow more sinless or less prone to the sin nature, then you are positing a weird distortion of the realistic view of transmission of sin and saying that sin is only transmitted through semen. Well, right. Well, and it's meant to be funny, but like for real, that's what you're yeah. positing. That yeah. sin is then somehow transmitted through semen. And then, so it just doesn't, it also genetically just does not work because the, whatever the baby is, is because of both sets of genes. Yeah. Well, genetically, they don't work. exist prior to both of them being there together. Yeah. And I've, I've never understood why we have this genetic understanding of sin like it's it's, it's a very something. 21st century answer that doesn't yeah. even work it doesn't work and it's something that literally in our scientific in the history of scientific understanding it doesn't it hasn't been around long enough to to be presented that way for almost any lengthy period of time um, i also think that it and this is partially due to augustine and a bunch of other guys like him um in the early church talking about the inherent sinfulness of sex and really demonizing sex in and of itself, yeah. which I think is also, also goes against what the Bible says. Um, because I do not think that the Bible, I think the Bible actually has a very high esteem and respect for sexual intimacy that a lot of fundamentalist traditional churches don't recognize. Um, and we have this whole shame culture built around it. That we at once shame it and fetish, fetishize it. Yeah. Right. It's very yeah. weird. It's very um, weird. But back to the point of sin, yeah. I'm just laying out, you have real issues with the humanness of Jesus having to skirt around that in really weird ways and then do damage to 
the either your own realistic interpretation, if, if you're using that framework for the transmission of sin, which would be genetic um, yeah. or representative, which is also a big issue and also really has to do with like m male sperm, that all of us were somehow present in Adam genetically. Yeah. Um, which like genetics doesn't even hold this up. So like I probably have no genes that actually come from my like, great grandfather. I, I probably literally don't yeah. have any genetic code that is similar to him just because of the way genetics works. Um, so that, yeah, you have real, real issues um, with both the realistic and the um, representative views here um, for transmission of Adam's guilt and for Jesus is, the, I mean, is my main issue. Yeah. Right. We can talk, we're going to talk about the unborn here in a minute, but like that's secondary to me. Like mm -hmm. what you do to your Christology because of your view of sin is, I think, paramount. Right. Um, because again, Christ has to be human and mm -hmm. sinless yeah. and God. He has to be all three of those things for the resurrection and for the payment of sin to be serious and to be, to have full effect. So side note real quick, that does depend on your conception of the atonement, but true, within, true. within traditional conceptions of the atonement, that is true. So there is a massive logical inconsistency within our theologies of atonement that are typically accepted and our yeah. theologies of sin that are typically accepted. And so it's like we've constructed these things in two separate categories and have never let them thoroughly mesh to the point where they make sense coherently together. Okay. Um, all right. So I'm just going to posit my view. I, I, I've brought up all these issues. My view is that you're not a sinner until you sin. Now, there's some caveats to that, which are um, things like, no it's you cannot not sin if you live long enough. Yeah. You are, because of the world that we live in, a world of death, decay, and disobedience and um separation of relationships to god and to each other right this is the curses in genesis 3 also read like there are no indications that those after adam somehow have his guilt of eating from the tree yeah anywhere in in genesis 1 through 11 and genesis 1 through 54 or however many chapters there are in genesis yeah um there's no inclination of that, especially when you talk about the curses. The curses are all about death and decay and broken relationship and pain. Yeah. That's now the world we live in. We're cast out of the garden. We're cast out of communion with God in the same way, which is what's needed for life, for life that is not destructive, yeah. for life that is by the tree of life so that we can live forever. So, and this we'll get into this also in the in what, when we talk about es eschatology. Yeah. But um, so, point being is, given the world which we live in, given the disconnect from Eden that we have, and from therefore our relationship with God that should be that is not. If you're if you live long enough, you are going to sin, because yeah. the world is to use a phrase my friend loves to use. The world is shot through with consequences of sin and death and decay. Yep. Well, it's like a domino effect. Yes. Um, and um, this, I think people conflate um, the idea of being 
born perfect and the idea of being born innocent. I would, I would posit someone is born innocent. Yeah. Right. And I would say you probably start sinning way sooner than you would even think. So like, we all know the, the phrase, like the terrible twos, right. I would say, yeah. you know, yeah. six months to a year, right. You're pretty, you know, I've, I know three year olds, five year olds who have younger siblings and the grandparents are like, Oh yeah, they'll push their younger siblings buttons and they know what they're doing. Oh, right. 100%. Exactly. So well, like that's simple. I know kids who are incredibly young, six months to a year old, that will purposefully push their parents' buttons. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I mean, at that point, you're just being you're being contrary. And, and yeah. yet you're you're not living into the the kingdom state that we were designed for. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't think that you, one thing that's also interesting is this sort of, and I, I haven't posed this question to you, so maybe come back and address this when, okay. not, um, when you're not already on a line of thought, but um, how does this interact with the concept of the age of accountability for sin and um, the yeah. way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. we'll get there. Yeah, okay. Okay, cool. We'll get there. I've thought about that a little bit since, since I wrote this. But I've been talking a lot about my issues and some of the answers that I'm positing. But let's look at, just so you all know that I'm not making this up or doing it because it sounds nice, right? I like little babies, so like I want to get them off the hook and not going to hell, <laughs> um, right? Uh, theoretically does that anyway, so. Yeah, which is like a nowhere you'll find in scripture. Yeah. Uh, anyway. I think my view actually holds up well with the idea of some kind of, I would call it, I would, I think more rightfully call it an age of innocence than an age of accountability, mm. right? Because, because within, we'll get there. All right. Let's just, yeah, let's yeah, read yeah. some, let's yeah. read some verses. Let's yeah. read Romans 5, 12. I'll read 12 through 17. I, th I read most of this early, but let's go through it again and pay attention. I will try and emphasize the words as I'm reading them, but pay attention Pay attention to what Paul is arguing comes because of Adam, okay? Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who were sin whose Sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. I'll get into that in a minute. Who was a type of the one who was to come? But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abundant, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification or because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man jesus christ okay there's a that's a lot of scripture in one go so i'll explain a little bit and then reread certain verses what i see here is paul arguing that we inherit death because of Adam. Guilt is nowhere in this passage. I'll address um, verse 16 and 17 here in a minute. 
Um, but just read 12 again. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, I have no problem with that. And even in this later verse, um, Paul talks about, and the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin. Uh, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, um, much more of the grace of God and the free gift. Okay, back to 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. I, I think Paul's pretty clear. Yeah. It's death clear. that comes to us, and we all sin, and therefore all die, because the wages of sin is death. We'll talk about this later as well. Um, but the wages of sin is death, and then Romans three twenty three. I I can't tell you how many people in in this in in my class were quoting Romans three twenty three, and then positing a view of edemic guilt inherit inheritance. Let me read Romans three twenty three again. I think it's a very true descriptive statement. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I think it's true. Yeah. It didn't say all are guilty. It said all have sinned. Well, and it also didn't the say it, it, there's a massive conflation between sin and death. It's like mm -hmm. we treat sin and death as the exact same thing. When Paul is making it explicitly clear that they're not the same thing, but one is the consequence of the other. Yeah. Okay, I'll read my little my little paragraph here. Go for it. Um all right, so I quote again Romans 5, 18 through 21. And 18 is the main, the main one that, that gives issue with my view, but I think I can explain it well enough. And then we'll move on to um, some things in 1 Corinthians 15 really quickly, uh, and, then, and, and then I'll wrap it up because I don't have... I mean, this is longer, but... Um, I might read my concluding paragraph and then we'll be good. I think I've made my, I'm, I think I'm making my case fairly well. Okay. So Romans 5, 18 says this, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Condemnation for all men sounds like guilt in Adam, right? One trespass condemnation for all men. But keep in mind, this is verse 18. I've been reading to you guys from verse 12. So let's keep in mind what verse 12 says. Death spread to all men because all sinned. If Adam's trespass leads to death, making all men sin, then we would all be condemned because of our sin. Mm -hmm. And I'm not attempting to be like Augustine, filling these verses here with phrases that aren't existing. I'm just trying to use the context of all of Romans 5 and Romans 5, 12 to 21 here to explain the one verse that hangs up a lot of people is 18. One trespass, condemnation for all men. Um, so one act of righteousness is justification for all men. Also keep in mind that in the following verse, um, well, I don't have it there. Uh, I have it here. Um, um so he says all in 18 and then in 19, listen, for by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. This is true because death leads to us becoming sinners. 
Um, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So there's many, there's all in verse 18, and then there's many in verse 19. So which one is it, Paul? Is it all or is it many? Well, I don't know. Paul seems to be, um, seems to be drawing a parallel right here between condemnation, yep. sin, the trespass of Adam, and the obedience of Jesus. That's the parallel that's being made. Um, again, quote look, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. It's because of our sin that we are made guilty before God, not because of Adam. And we live in the world long enough, we will all sin. Well, it's, it's about the fact that it's not inherited guilt. It's mm -hmm. because we are born, I won't say sinful, but because we are born broken, we sin. And born in a broken world. And born in a broken world, we sin. And because we sin, we inherit death. It's, it's the state of the world, not necessarily something that we've inherited genetically or genealogically. Yeah. Uh, and I think that, right, that conflation of sin and death that I think the traditional view holds and the conflation of sin and death that Augustine holds and his insertions that he makes in order to support his point um, really don't take a holistic view of scripture or even the passage that we're dealing with that is typically cited as the proof text for this. Yeah, it's a descriptive statement. Yeah. All have sinned. I, yeah, I believe that. All yeah. have sinned. It's kind of easy to tell. You look around and you see, you can tell. <laughs> right. And it's that sinfulness that leads you, that, that then makes you guilty. Yeah. Right. I, and I talked about this earlier. There's a conflation of a lot of people who have raised issue with this, and maybe rightfully so, upon first glance, that I am positing this kind of perfect original human being. And I wouldn't ascribe perfection. Maybe I'm not like, I also don't know exactly what I think about sin nature within this view. Um, I'm still thinking about that. Yeah. Um, but again, I would prescribe a certain sense of innocence, not perfection. There's innocence Yeah. prior well, to sin. Well, and I, I mean, this is me just spitballing because I haven't really thought this all the way through, but the the sin nature doesn't have to be like, like you said, the world is broken and I think we are broken, but our, the guilt that is counted against us, I don't think comes inherent in that brokenness. Mm, yes. Right. That's a, that's a good way you can marry the two. And, and you so, can still have the sin nature idea. Yeah. And you can still have the, the, the broken sin nature that we are all born into without committing the actual the proclivity sin. to sin is maybe yeah. a good way to say it. Yeah. And I think it's um, Marty talks about this in one of the introduction episodes to Bema, where he says that you um, he, he's talking to one of his Jewish friends in um, Israel who says to you, sin is something that is inside of you that you need to get out. You Christian, but yeah. to me, sin is something that I do. And I think that that yeah. is the more accurate biblical view is this mm -hmm. something that you do and you do it continuously and you do it without wanting to, and you do it with, with wanting to, but sin is something that you do. It is an action. It is not some miasmatic thing, this dark guck that is inside of you. 
it is it is doing damage to the way God has designed his world. Um, yeah. And I think that we are all broken, imperfect creatures born into a broken, imperfect world. And because of that, we have a tendency to sin. That does not mean we are destined to, because a God that would punish us for something we are destined to is not, is not a merciful or just God. Mm-hmm. That I would consider to be a tyrant. And of course, yes. then you have the debates with Calvinists about all of that. But um, yeah, I'll let my Arianism stand here for a little bit. So okay, no, I, I agree with all that. I think uh, give me th- some things to think about. Um, I want to get on to another verse so that I'm not just you know building my whole theology of the sin idea on Romans five. Although Romans five twelve is the one that's quoted the most for the inherent guilt yeah. idea. Um, and oddly enough, Romans 3.23, which is like, if you just read the verse, then I don't know if, how you can draw the conclusion. But this will also help. This will be referenced in our next conversation. So um, just put this in the back of your head as you hear it. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 7 through 21. And if Christ had not been raised, here, here we go again talking about the reality of the resurrection. And if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. But only for this life we have hope in Christ. We are, but if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be most, all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as an Adam, all die so in christ all will be made alive i think that would have been a perfect place for for paul to say present adam all are guilty Mm -hmm. so it's it's not his point his point is about death and resurrection the wages of sin is death Mm -hmm. he's contrasting that with the resurrection of christ and the eventual resurrection of the dead which we'll talk about here in a minute yeah um yeah, just keep those phrases that I was uh, that I was trying to emphasize there. For since death, verse twenty-one. For since death came through a man, not guilt. Death would have been a perfect place to say guilt. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. The point is death and resurrection. For as an Adam all die, and you would say an Adam all sin, which would have been perfect yeah. for your Augustinian view, yeah, for your yeah. for your representational view. But it's not what Scripture says. First Corinthians. 21, 15, 21 says, for as an Adam, all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. Well, and I think Paul is being very specific with his word choice here. Because like I said earlier, we, we feel comfortable swapping the word sin and death, like they're completely interchangeable. But I think Paul's very specific with choosing his words to construct an argument. And I think it's the argument that you're making. Yeah. Um, I will, uh, because I want to get through this and I want to get to a conversation that is like way more in my head. And I think much more like I haven't thought about it as much and it's, I'm not as convinced of it. So like, I want to get there and talk about it. Uh, I want to, but to do this segment and this topic justice, we might have to revisit this at some level, um, later. And I think this is going to get hinted at quite a lot in, in the future. Um, 
I, I want to, I'm just going to read my, my last two paragraphs here, unless you have any other comments to make on that. No. Um, and then you can, you know, issue some comments if you'd like some clarification might be needed and then we can move on to our next topic. Yeah. Uh, uh, these last two paragraphs, I'll, my, obviously my concluding paragraph kind of tries to wrap things up. Um, but this, the second to last paragraph deals with babies. Uh, and I think that it is, it is a nice way, which uh, I can comment on age of accountability then after I read the paragraph. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think it's, it, I wouldn't say it's, it's not, as I said in the beginning, it's not the part of my view that totally convinces me or makes me like this more because I get babies off the hook. Right. I have a real view, real problem with how Christology has to be messed with in the traditional view than I do with salvation of the unborn. Although I think it's important, I think it's worth you know, talking about. Yeah. Uh, it's a nice byproduct of this view, I'll put it that way, mm -hmm. um, that I can get babies off the hook without any problem from the text even. Um, so uh, yes, yeah, so there's that. This is like a nice, uh, like not even just nice, but like I think more in line with what we see as God's character anyway. Unless you're a weird hyper-Calvinist, which, you know, there's certain problems you have with this view. Because, like, anyway, we'll get there later. Um, all right. I'll, I'll just say it again. Give me a way to get Jesus off the hook for being 100% man and also exempt from sin nature or inherited guilt in the traditional view. And then you can convince me that this isn't more compelling or more accurate, right? Uh, and I'll believe you. But at this point, I don't see one. Uh, there's also a problem with babies who die, either aborted or stillborn, and their eternal destiny in the traditional view. To be clear, Christ is still necessary for eternal life with God. However, these examples are still relevant because they, by definition, have not sinned and are not guilty before God. So they belong in a different category, innocent. Again, not perfect, innocent. I'll address your thing about accountability here in a second and another question I got from a friend. I'll quote Michael Heiser here and kind of fill in how this works. He said, I would agree that babies, quote Heiser here, I would agree babies, aborted fetuses, the, mental, the mentally disabled, and the infant or children unable to believe are with Christ because they are raised by or with because of Christ and are not condemned by their sin. It has nothing to do with works, and resurrection is absolutely essential. No one is in heaven by their own merit. No one is in heaven that is innocent without being resurrected by or with because of Christ. Christ is the essential means of salvation. Without Christ, there is no eternal life. This is why Paul is so uh, dogmatic about a resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, as we read, because without it, we are most to be pitied. Because we will not then inherit the eternal life that Christ now gives us because of his fully humanness and his fully godness in paying for our sins and becoming king and doing all these things he does on the cross. Right. And Isaac's argument here, which I think is very compelling, is again, they get there because of Christ, because of the resurrection, because of what happens at the resurrection of the dead, because of the judgment there. They belong in a different category. It's innocent. It's not guilty but they still get to join us in heaven in the new earth because of their 
innocence and because Christ makes a way for them to be there. Yeah. But they are, but they're in a different category because they are guilty of sin. They still need Christ to be with God fully mm-hmm. because we as humans are separated, but they're not guilty of sin in the same way. All of us who are able to live are, um, two points about this. So age of innocence or age of accountability. I, I would never want to posit an age. I would yeah. think it'd be very low. Yeah. If there were one, say six months or a year. Yeah. Um, and just so that I can read it, I had somebody in my class on this topic of um, a, a logical loop that might, that, uh, that might exist, which I think doesn't, was, was questioned. And I'll just read the question and then my response. Um, um, hang on, I've got to make it. Oh, here we are. I've got to make it to my post. So I posted you know, much of what I've been reading as experts for this class. I had a response from a classmate and he said, so are you, this might be the response of some of you. This is why I want to bring it up. So are you saying that there's, that it is theoretically possible if you take an infant and raise them in an optimal environment that they may not sin. And, and then they would inherently, there would be logically Christ would not be unique in that sense. Um, again, if it's theoretically possible in my view that you're born innocent, you stay innocent your whole life and you don't sin. As I've said, I think that's impossible. And here's, here's my explanation. I said, no, because we are exempt as humans on earth from the optimal environment, Eden. So raising a child in the opt- optimal environment is quite literally impossible. Also, I've been focusing on the human nature of Jesus a lot here because I, how we think of humans relation to sin has to port with Jesus's humanity as I said earlier. Let us not forget that he was also fully God, and amen to that, because without it, he would have sinned like all of us. If someone can argue a way to import the Holy Spirit into some someone at six months old, or possibly sooner, then I guess an argument for a human who can live a sinless life exists, but I think that only happened once. Yeah, and, and my response to that would be... Um... And this might be me adding to your view, but I think we as humans are are born broken. Your your concept of sin like doesn't explicitly deal with sin nature, um, and I think there's not directly a, no. Yeah, it, yeah. So you can still have it in there. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that <clears throat> we humans are born with a proclivity to sin yeah. naturally, and so just because we don't we're not born sinful doesn't mean we aren't born with a natural. Guilty. And, and yeah. But just because we're, we're not born guilty of a sin does not mean that we are not born with natural inclinations to sin. Yeah. And so even if you were raised in a perfect environment, your natural inclination to sin would still lead you to sin because it wasn't ever about necessarily the environment. I, this is the story of Buddha. Yeah. 
So, because essentially it's like his, uh, his, uh, what would you, what is the word I'm looking for? Um, exposure to the suffering of the world, right? And sin is suffering is a consequence of the sin in the world. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, it, I, I think that that loophole really isn't a loophole in the way that i see your view no 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 and i don't think it is either as i just explained yeah right because the perfect environment that we could be born into that would result in a sinless life po being possible is yeah. eden and our first parents didn't even succeed so yeah you know, i i again, don't have high hopes again i think that that comes down to the fact that sin is a choice and mm -hmm we're naturally inclined to make the opposite choice. So, and, and we have to train ourselves to not make that opposite choice. And you can say that that's because of Adam, but that doesn't necessarily posit guilt upon us in the womb or upon birth, right? Yeah. There's a difference there. And a lot of people are conflating those two, I think. Yeah. Uh, I'll just read my last paragraph here to sum it up. Yeah. I say what we've been, what you were just expressing. The whole world has felt the effects of the death and destruction brought about by Adam. Just read the curses. This is Paul's point in the middle of Romans 8, where he talks about all of creation groaning to be made new, which we will talk about here in a minute. Continue the quotation. But the effect on humanity is particularly painful because we no longer live in the garden are out of God's sustaining presence and do not have access to the tree of life. So we need new access to life. This is Jesus. But we also have a sin problem. And given the world that we live in, anyone who lives will sin, which means they will be guilty before God and need a payment for their sins, which is brought about by Christ and gives us access to God, leading to eternal life. That is my conception of human humanity and sinfulness. Also, I think God does care about all of creation, um, and this is what makes the incarnation so special and humanity special. Uh, I've been using this phrase, and I, th I think I find it quite quite good. Um, Jesus does not care about the sin of moose. Right? Like, yeah. he's not incarnating into a beaver. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Um, there's something particular about the human, human sinfulness that he's worried about, which mm -hmm. is why he becomes one, which is why we are the crown of creation, which is why we are given the choice. Yeah. No other animals are given that choice. Yeah. Right. Um, maybe that's a side note, but I think it's well worth thinking about the implications of the incarnation and how you construe human humanity. Um, anyway, those are just, I think, side issues. But as I said, this isn't my view. I'm basically ripping Heiser's, you know, conception of sin from, from Romans 5, uh, which he is, you know, mixing in uh, Wesley's view of sin, rearticulated in a specific way. Specific way. Um, he does not posit uh, sin nature, which you've expressed a certain way you can get the sin here yeah. and it still work. Um, so, and you could, uh, you know, you could argue that God's um, power in Christ overrides the sin nature, which is part of, you know, being made new creation as well. Yeah. Um, I would argue that that's the, um, the the command and the walk of christ as an example and the power of the holy spirit given to us mm -hmm. 
Um, yeah. But, you know. Okay, so there's my uh, heretical to some view of sin, uh, which, as I said, oh, I'm going to keep that up. As I said, um, affects some other things too. The other thing that we wanted to talk about, I mean, do you want to intro this or do you need to do it? Um, no, you can go for it. Uh, the other thing we want to talk about, something that I've been mulling over for probably about a year uh, on and off, is is another one of those traditional things was raised in excuse me never questioned it never really crossed my mind that there's other conceptions of this uh, would be a conception a certain conception of hell which in the and like scholarly theologian terms is widely called eternal conscious torment uh this is the view that, especially after the resurrection of the dead, things fifteen, that um, this is also in the story of uh, Matthew twenty-six, the story of the sheep and the goats. Yeah. Uh, that there are some who will inherit eternal life, and some who will inherit eternal punishment. And those who are eternally punished, I'm, I'm just framing the, the view, uh, those who are eternally punished will be, I think if the conception is consistent and correct, then they will be embodied people who experience fire, brimstone, decay, Act agony, weeping, gnashing of teeth. I'm trying to pull in a bit with the language here. Um, yeah. Forever. Yeah. Eternal conscious. Yeah. Now, even in my framing of that, I have certain issues, which we will get to. Um, but uh, I have recently been playing with a certain idea of, an, of annihilationism, or what is also uh, called um, conditional immortality. Uh, and I like that phrasing a little bit more than annihilationism, although I, although they're like two sides of the same coin, right? Yeah. Um, if you are conditionally immortal, then what happens to those who are not immortal? Well, they will be done away with or annihilated. Yeah. Um, this has this has a lot to do with how we think about humans anthropologically, how we define image of God, how we think about eternal eternality. Yeah. Um, in in concepts of heaven and in hell, um, I think they each affect each other. So, yeah, yes, um, this is what we want to talk about. Kind of pushing on. I don't. I don't know. I, I think you said earlier before we started recording that you were very much raised in a eternal conscious torment upbringing. Yeah. Um, ever really questioned it when you were younger? No. No. Okay. Me neither. Not until recently. Um, I'll say this. I always had problems with it yeah not even because i was like oh that's mean but just because it didn't always seem apparent or consistent in in ways that genuinely bothered me but anyway yeah so if you feel that way please stick around and listen yeah um, i think today we want to as i've said i've been thinking about this in more broad strokes for a while, um, it wasn't until yesterday, the day before, 
that I really got into like, okay, what are the specifics of an annihilationist view? What are yeah. the specifics of eternal conscious punishment? Where are the texts that they use? How do they respond to each other? Um, I don't have the study or the willingness to get into that today on the podcast. And we probably don't have time at this yeah. point. Uh, but I do want to go over some more overarching problems, just yeah. logically, theologically, the theoretically yeah. that I have with ETC, eternal conscious torment. Um, just things that I raise as questions about the view. Um, now I, okay, where to start? I'm positing a view that I, I doubt it's unique to me. It's I'm, I'm mixing some Lewis views with some other things going on that I see in the Bible to come to this conclusion uh, in a very weird uh, other analogy that, that will make sense uh, of our last week's jokes, uh, so part of the crew, part of the ship uh, ideas. Uh, so I'm like mixing a few things. I haven't read anybody. Of course, my study hasn't been very long, but I haven't read anybody or ran into anybody at this point who hits at this probably more than Lewis and Lewis still has a certain flavor of hell in great divorce that I probably wouldn't subscribe to at this point, but I'm, if there is a hell, I think it's, he gets the closest to it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's just my cards on the table. Like I haven't done a bunch of deep dive research into this. I just have a lot of questions and I think that a lot of Lewis's conceptions of hell and the great divorce are very helpful in thinking about this. And then also some things that are just in scripture about the word hell and the other ideas around hell that we don't get to because we translate hell as one thing when there's actually a couple of different things that we translate hell that mean different things in Jewish conception and in Greek conception, by the way. Um, and we'll get into that in just a minute. I will give you the title of what my view is. I've titled it Degenerative uh, Annihilationism. And the the rough version outline the quick answer to what that means is uh, i'll start with the positive end first this is how i explained it to somebody a few days ago so the positive end and this is why i say how you view heaven or the afterlife for believers is going to influence how you think about hell mm -hmm. but if the conception is that at the end of time now also full cards on the table I, at this point, would subscribe to a hell where, or uh, sorry, a heaven and a hell where those who are disembodied believers until the resurrection of the dead are in some place called heaven. I don't know what it's supposed to look like. I don't think scripture really tells us. No. Um, and then same thing with those who are rebellious or don't, are in the family of God, are somewhere, maybe spiritually, maybe in some sort of spiritual body, some yeah. inhabitation of that or somewhere with others who are not that way, who are that way separated from God. Yeah. Right. What much of this is going to center around is what happens at the resurrection of the dead. As, as I said, first Corinthians 15 is going to come back to haunt us here. Um, what, what I'm, so the positive view of this, 1 Corinthians 15 happens, the resurrection of the dead happens, the judgment happens, where those who are in God's family, who are raised with Christ, which actually is everybody, but those who inherit eternal life because of their faith in Jesus, 
and their commitment to him and their loyalty to Yahweh and then his payment of our debt and sin are going to inherit eternal life and then be in the new Jerusalem when the new heaven and the new earth, um, when the earth is remade, all these words are very specific, um, where there is a tree of life in the city, right? Um, so we go to that existence. And I don't think it's an ethereal, spiritual, we all play harps and sing worship songs, right? Yeah. That would be not even taking Paul seriously in his, if there is no literal resurrection of Jesus, then there's no hope for us because there is no resurrection for us. This is why this was the big debate. And I need to do some more research on the Sadducees specifically because they didn't believe in this. Yeah, That was part of the, the, the riff was that yeah. they did not posit a second resur a resurrection of the dead. Yeah. Um, and this is also why I said earlier, I take the physical literal resurrection of Jesus very seriously because I think this is a reality. Yeah. So if that is true for the believer or the one who's loyal to Yahweh is then going to be conformed to the image of Jesus, be, have a resurrection body, be an embodied person, be living in the new earth, be becoming more human, be conformed to the image of God, be in God's presence like Adam and Eve in the garden, have access to the tree of life, all these things. If then the, the idea is we progress from that eternally, yeah, eternally, and this has some weird things to do with time, but it's neither here nor there in this conversation. You take that as the positive end. So what's the negative end of this? Those who are damned, those who are not loyal to Yahweh, those who reject God, also get resurrected. Also, possibly get new bodies mm -hmm. or get some kind of embodiment if they don't already have them. Right? Yeah. But they are going to be put in a place where they're cut off from God, where they, if we're made in the image of God, made to be in the garden, made to be like God, and they are cut off from God. Therefore, not able to, um, not able to be made in the image, or not able to be conformed to the image. I think that word is very specific. Yeah. Of Jesus. Then they would become less and less human and less and less like God. Yes. And then my question would be, and this is why I call it degenerative annihilationism, is that in that conception, at what point? Do you no longer be you? Yeah. At what point does that person who gets resurrected and then possibly put somewhere where they're cut off from God, where they're cut off from others, this is why Lewis' conception of hell and great divorces, I think is fantastic. Cut off from hell, cut off from others, cut off from community, cut off from the tree of life as Adam and Eve were mm -hmm. in the beginning. At what point do they degenerate because they can't be conformed to the image of Jesus, which means they become less human. At what point do they, whatever they is, whatever that person is, cease to exist? Yeah, and become. I think within this framework, you have to posit something that's degenerative. Yeah. Well, and within, so my understanding from the way that you've um, you explained it to me when we were talking about this off air was. Um, and this is part of Lewis's argument, I think, in, when, when he talks about this, is you, 
all of the sin that you've spent your entire life building Mm -hmm. starts to become the only part of you that's left Mm -hmm. because all of the image of God, all of the goodness that you ever were slowly leaks out of you as you, as you have chosen to reject God. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, you degenerate in not only morality, but in identity. Mm -hmm. And you, you lose this, this sense of, of, yeah, of who you are. Um, The, the image of God, I don't think of, I don't think there's anyone out there who's thinking that we humans literally look like Mm -hmm. God. There's something, uh, there's something about us other than that, that is the image of God. And I think that that largely comes down to self-control and the ability to rein in our natural inclinations. Mm -hmm. And so when given over to our own choices, when we build a life of sinfulness and self-destruction, and when we are given over to that and God retracts his, his image of self-control from us, we then become uncontrollably anger, hate, mm-hmm. selfishness, lust. Like Just read Macbeth, okay? Yes, all <laughs> of those things. And we degenerate into this what's what's a good word this this pillar of sin mm-hmm. you become the sin and and that's all that's left of you and yeah. um and so yeah this the, as the image of god gets pulled away you you just become more and more of who you've decided you want to be and yeah. that is degenerative in nature yeah since you yes agreed um, I, I think you've summarized it well. I want to read the Lewis quote. Oh, yes. Um, Tim uses this in his sermon on Tribal Link. Uh, the, the name of Tim's sermon is, isn't hell just plain mean. It's part of a series they did about tough subjects called Rotten Tomatoes. Um, Tim, I don't, I, I'm not going to claim to know what Tim thinks about this, uh, like some people want to do on the internet. Uh, and he also has a whole series about which I can also link in the description. I haven't listened to it yet. He has a whole podcast series on the Bible project about hell and heaven. Yeah. Right. I'd be very curious to listen to that, but, uh, and I'm going to steal pretty liberally from this, uh, message here in a minute. Um, even more so, because I think he does some good things about language and imagery and and all of that, that are helpful to deconstruct uh, the, the evangelical reformed conceptions of hell. Okay, uh, but I, I want to read this quote because I think it's fantastic. And Lewis is just his language is so always so beautiful, which you have just summarized the view um, in in the past couple of minutes. Lewis says this in the Great Divorce: If in fact Christianity is true, hell is precisely the correct technical term for it. Hell begins with a grumble mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. Hang on. Is this the beginning of of the quote? Uh, No, no, it's not. Sorry. That's the second, second portion. Sorry. 
beginning in the beginning of the quote. Christianity asserts that we are going to go on living forever, and that must either be true or false. Now, there are a good many things which would not be worth bothering about if I'm going to live 80 years old or so, but which I'd better bother about if I'm going to go on living forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are getting worse so gradually, are, are getting worse so gradually that the increase in my lifetime will not be very noticeable, but it might be absolute hell in a million years. If, in fact, Christian is true, hell is precisely the correct technical term for it. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. There may come a day when you can no longer do so. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever. Yeah. You you become the thing that is hell. Yes, and like he says, you may even be able to even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer do so. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even enjoy it, but just the grumbling itself going on forever like a chain. If there is no annihilationism at the end of this, if there is no point to where you cease to exist and God gets rid of you as this, whatever this is that Lewis is talking about, then I would say that those in hell are so unrecognizable that we won't even be able to realize what's, what's going on. They'll be so disassociated and so degenerated from the image of God that they will be something else entirely. Well, and that comes down, I mean, it comes back to the great Christian, and I would even say before Christian Jewish idea of God's attempt to save us from ourselves. And the story of the Hebrew Bible is a story of God continuously reaching his hand out to stop us from the choices that we're making and the natural consequences thereof and us mm -hmm. slapping his hand away and saying no i've got this mm -hmm. and and so yeah I, I think that if you carry that story out to its logical conclusion lewis's lewis's idea is the like that that is the logical step right after um, and I, I won't say that I necessarily um, hold to this degenerative annihilationism or traditional annihilationism or um, eternal conscious torment or I'm definitely not a universalist. That's the one I can tell you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we can both affirm that we are not yeah, universalist. Yeah, but what I do find super interesting is that I think this um, and what Tim and several others in, in that sermon and in the Q&A brought up is that both this idea of annihilation or complete destruction and this idea of torment are present as biblical images of the negative side of the afterlife. Both of those images are present, period. And 
Um, so what you have to do theologically then is decide which one, if not both, of those images are poetic literary descriptions and not literal descriptions. And I would lean on the side, at least right now, that both are at least in part literary descriptions, but which one of those gets closer to the reality that will be experienced. Um, and so did, does that make sense or was, was I too abstract? No, I think that makes sense. Um... Sorry, I'm looking at the quote of Kells Dorlock from the inside. Um, it actually is from a problem, prob the problem of pain, uh, which actually might actually, know uh, it's a little bit later. Um, well, I, I think that that really is um, an accurate depiction of the story as a whole uh, of the Bible is that, you know, like I said earlier, God keeps extending his hand and we keep slapping it away. Mm -hmm. And um, and I do think that uh, Tim's idea that we, we make our own hell, hell is never something that is described in the Bible as God creating, um, mm -hmm. which is interesting, right? Because we have this concept of God creating the heavens and the earth, of course. So like I, a fire is made, but that's not the same as we think of hell. Yeah, it's not even the same thing in the book of Revelation. Those two things are differentiated. And then because... Hell is cast into the lake of fire, actually. Yeah, hell itself is cast into the lake of fire. So then we're, what's the lake of fire? And is that the same thing as Gehenna, um, the eternal fire that um, is talked about by Jesus in the Gospels, which is actually a physical place in Israel. And so there's a lot of, of watery territory here. Um, it's kind of wishy-washy. And, and then again, the ancient Israelite conception of the afterlife was a watery abyss that we've already mm -hmm. talked about. And so how does that play in? And, and then on that, you have this concept, um, I think Tim in his sermon talks about how um, the prophets frequently use images of fire as images of God's judgment and wrath. Mm -hmm. And some of that is within the, the frame of an eternal punishment. And so where is all of that at play in whatever ends up happening? And so I, I think any person who says that the traditionalist um, eternal conscious torture view is the only view that is attested to in scripture hasn't fully explored the realm of what scripture is talking about or mm -hmm. the, the cultural context therein. Yeah, and on, I want to get to some stuff about Sheol and Hades and hell and, yeah. and Gehenna yeah. here in a minute. Um, but just on that note of, and I, I brought this up earlier, this is why I was careful in my description of the, the what we see as reality in in Revelation and in First Corinthians about yeah. the resurrection from the dead and judgment, and then the the destiny of those in God's kingdom and those outside of it. Yeah, and I and I try to make this point is that if, and I was kind of uh, jokingly saying this before we got on, yeah. but if you take if you are logical with your view of 
the kingdom of God that we inherit after the resurrection, and then what happens for those in hell or Hades, then your view of hell is purgatorial in a sense. And what I mean by that is this. In, and this is also the argument that's used by people who affirm universalism at some level. So here it is. <laughs> just just proving that like it's a horseshoe it's not a it's it's not an arc um so like i said second or resurrection second death yeah and we'll get into some revelation as well that i think makes annihilationism a very uh, possible and you get embodied you live in that new body in the new heavens and the new earth. Well, I guess you could hold that it's only spirits that inhabit hell, but I think that's kind of weird because they've been resurrected. So resurrection, as Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 15, resurrection is implying embody, embodiment. Yeah. Right. This is why it's difficult because it gets into conception, our conceptions of humanity and the image, right? Mm -hmm. Um, there's something about the constraints of a body that are very interesting to me that I don't know what to do with. Yeah. Regardless, if you're going to be that logical with the new heavens and the new earth, then your posit of the resurrection and then the judgment of, of the damned is that they are embodied, living in torment forever. Well, that kind of sounds, yes, it sounds like hell, yeah. quite literally, and it's like kind of purgatorial because they're still have the image because they're still like embodied spirits. Yeah. They've been resurrected, but do they become something else for that? This is why my degenerativeness is like such a question for me. Cause I'm like, where, what happens? And also here's my other, here's my biggest issue with this, with this view, the eternality of those who are in hell or Hades, the lake of fire to be more scripturally specific. Yeah. and accurate uh there is no tree of life in the lake of fire mm -hmm. but there's two trees of life actually in in revelation yeah and then in the new jerusalem which we inhabit as the kingdom of god yeah which is what adam and eve if we're taking the story right which is what adam and eve were cut off from i said this earlier yeah they were cut off from the tree of life therefore sin entered the world and what did paul say yeah death through sin yeah so they and if we're taking lewis's view seriously and i think we should what happens to those who this is why i have such logical issues with with eternal conscious torment if the people who are in hell just continue to sin then the logical consequence of that continued sin is death, is death. yeah yeah if and they can't have to read the Bible literally. Yeah. Right. And to the point I made earlier, they don't have access to a tree of life, which, which then, in in terms of just the story, in terms of the log, the logistics and the logic, what's happening here of new Edens, of new Earths, of new heavens? How can they live forever when they can't get to the tree? Show me a way that that can make sense, please. Yeah. For all of you out there who are eternal conscious torment people, like, 
please give me a convincing argument because like I I just don't see it. I don't see it. Even yeah. in even in the framework of how you as an EPT person would con- would frame hell, I don't I don't see a logical consistent biblical way for them to continue living forever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so what's interesting about this this way of describing them living forever, oftentimes that comes from the sense of an eternal fire or eternal torment, language like that that's used. And I'm not going to chapter verse right now, and that's a pet peeve of mine when others don't. So I apologize. Yeah, we we also talked about having a more specific chapter verse textual yes. I'm just, argument about this later. This the We're just trying to deal with questions and conceptions that both of these views have that seem to be especially on the eternal conscious permit side, seem to be problematic. Yeah. Problematic, not even in the sense that I don't like them, but just in the sense that I, it doesn't seem to reflect the Bible as, as we have it, at least as I've read it. Um, yeah. And I think that I'm, tr- I'm trying to be more authentic to it than just a, a blanket reading. And so um, one thing that has been brought up to me in the past, I believe uh, Marty Solomon from Bama podcast um, talks about the Hebrew word olam being a qualitative and not a quantitative um, term. And so what does olam mean? Eternity. Okay. Sorry. Um, and so olam, um, the, the concept of eternity being qualitative, not quantitative. Now, I will say this. I actually disagree with him there because I have never, of course, I've only been taking Hebrew for a year, but I've never encountered a, an instance where Olam, um, the, the concept of eternity has been used qualitatively to talk about something, meaning that it's talking about, you know, it has eternal quality. It's eternally, eternal goodness or eternal badness, not eternal as in lasting forever or Sometimes the term is used just to mean like a really, really long time. So like, David, I will give you a kingdom that will last forever. Um, And in some of those declarations to David, the understanding is not literally till the world explodes, but until, you know, a really long time, right? And so the term can be used poetically, um, which is why I bring up, you know, with these two different ideas of destruction or torment, we have to sort of decide which one of these or both are poetic and which one is literal or are mm-hmm. both of them poetic to a degree and literal to a degree. Uh, one of the videos that you sent me, I can't remember, was it Chris Dale? Um, Chris, I want to say Ross. I don't, well, I don't I'll know. look at the text but, message. Um, uh, yeah, well, go ahead. But he was talking about how Chris Date, we were Chris both wrong, but you were closer than me. Um, so Chris Date was talking about how, um, shoot, what did he say? That, um, oh, that fire consumes. Yeah. And so if you're, if you're, this tossed, is the picture of Gehenna. Yeah. If, if you're tossed into a lake of eternal fire, it's not the, that you are going to burn forever is that the fire is going to burn forever and you right. are part of the fuel, mm-hmm. right? And so fuel gets exhausted. Um, 
And, and then the, uh, he talks about, I think it was in Isaiah somewhere, this idea of the worm eating you for forever, yeah. whatever. But at that point, the corpse, the, the it's maggot. Jesus' quotation as well. Is, yeah. Is yeah. using that image. The maggot is already, it's eating something that's dead. And that's the point of that, that illusion is it's, it's death, it's destruction, it's decay, it's degeneration. Mm -hmm. uh, and I use that term specifically because I, I think that your concept fits there. Um, and, and so it's not necessarily, now then you have to square with the eternal torment thing, yeah. um, weeping and gnashing of teeth for forever, you know, a long eternity. Um, and that is the one explicit image that I don't think is, at least in my current understanding, easily explained away. No, and I don't know what to do with it either. So that's yeah. why I said I hold this loosely. I think it's helpful in some ways to explain things and issues, big issues I have with eternal conscious torment, yeah. but I can't explain them all away. And I don't, I don't even want to explain them all away. I just, I want a good yeah. interpretation. I want a good reason for those to be there. Right. Yeah. Well, and what I think is, naive of a lot of people who hold to eternal conscious torment is that there's this attitude that it is the only logical reading of of scripture when you have early church fathers who wholeheartedly disagree with that mm -hmm. who are not dumb people and who are definitely reading their text right and so to claim that now i will say you know Conscious eternal torment has been the predominant view for a very long time. But I think that's based on who gained popularity way back so then. So was Augustine's view of original sin, which we just talked yeah. about for yep. 40 minutes about why I don't agree. Yeah. And so we also have this tendency to make certain early church fathers almost canonical. Yeah. Without making them canonical. Like it's heretical to say they're canonical, but we treat them like they're canonical. And so we make their interpretations. It's like the Catholic Church with Aquinas, right? Like Thomas Aquinas more or less has had the final say in the Catholic Church for a significant period of time on certain issues. And now I think they're starting to work their way away from that, or they have been for a little while, um, at least on certain things. Um, but I just think it's interesting that we sort of have our canon, and then we have our canon within the canon, and then yeah. we have our canon outside of the canon. Yeah. And it's oftentimes that canon outside of the canon that we don't even talk about. And this is one of those areas where I think it's kind of applicable. Mm -hmm. um, you are a little bit more educated on this than I am, but I I do want to get here before you have to get off. Yeah. Um, uh, about Sheol, about Hades, about the Lake of Fire, some of these differences. And then I want to read some stuff from Revelation 20, which yeah. I think is part of the biggest thing that's pushing me over the edge mm -hmm. in, in terms of this. Uh, and then we have to make our, our Caribbean illusion. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. It's so good. It is so good. You say, okay, but I, but I wanted, yeah. About it. Say what? You came up with it and I just geek about it. Yeah, so. I, I think John, I don't know if it was me or John that originally came up with it, but we like, it was, it was a like communal thought, I guess, that we both were like, oh, it's, that works really well. It's just so good. Anyway, um, 
Yeah, but I want to get here first just to yeah. A, bring in a resource that is very conservative and like fundamentalist mm-hmm. in this sense so that I'm not just quoting a bunch of people that agree with me. Um, but he, so this is from Tim LaHaye's book on the, on the rapture and the end times. <laughs> <laughs> I was laughing when you read that. Um, yeah, this is a section called Section 48 of that of a book that I'm actually going to have to borrow for next semester because I'm research his conception of uh, the rapture just so I can disagree with it. Uh, <laughs> um, I don't see the rapture in Paul's eschatology, but okay. Um, all right. I'm going to start in the second paragraph. This this section, section 48, is called Where Are the Dead Now? Uh it says in 39, and I don't know how much of this I'm going to read, honestly, Daniel. So like, stop me yeah. whenever you feel like something interesting comes up and you want to comment. Okay. Cool. And the 39 books of the Old Testament, the, wor- the world of the dead is called Sheol 65 times. That word may be translated to mean the grave, hell, or death. Sheol must not be confused with the pit or the lake of fire, for it is the place of all those who have departed this life, both believers and unbelievers. The New Testament word for the world of the dead is Hades, which appears 42 times. Time out is it? Yeah. So just on Sheol, that's going to be the one that I know the most about. Hades. Okay, go ahead. I'm familiar with like the Greek mythology way of referring to Hades. I'm not sure, sure how the New Testament authors use that. I, I think it's used a few times. It's it's yeah. actually used in, um, uh, I think it's Peter's. Um, yeah. um Actually, this is another fascinating thing that like, I don't know what to do with Peter's uh, quotations about from first Enoch about the mm-hmm. place where the angels that didn't keep their space in Genesis six, they came that not even the angels, the sons of God, yeah. those are different things. Um, the spiritual beings that came somehow in embodied form and had sex yeah. with the daughters of men yeah. from, um, that created the yeah. Nephilim uh, from Genesis six reside. That's yep. their place now is in Hades. Um, mm-hmm. So that's that's where that language I know is specifically used. Yeah. But anyway, uh, Sheol. Also referred to as Tartarus, or is that yes. in Jew? We we get into that in a in a paragraph, I think. Okay. Um Sheol. so Sheol. I'm, I'm not super familiar with the concept of Hades as it's being used. I will say that I do think it's interesting that. Uh, Peter is the main one who uses that term because in the Gospels we have the account, um, or in one of the Gospels we have an account of him being given his title, Peter, at what is called the gates of hell or the gates of Hades, um, and that whole account. And so I think that it's interesting that he's our sole reference to that, and I'm wondering if he might be doing something with that. Again, I haven't looked into this or thought about it at all. I'm just spitting this off the top of my head. Um, So Sha'ol, um, like I talked about in our Jonah conversation um, and in reference to Genesis, it is not a fiery place. It is a watery place. It is a place of total destruction and death. And whoever you're reading is correct in the sense that it conceptually is where everyone goes after death. Um, now, whether or not that is a reality um, or whether or not that was the 
extra biblical cultural understanding, we can debate about that. Um, I don't necessarily have a strong opinion either way. Um, I do think that to a large part that is an extra biblical understanding, um, but I do think that extra biblical understandings have to be respected um, because they inform the way people would have originally interpreted what is being said. Mm -hmm. So on that, um, I think that the, um, so it's where everyone goes, right? And then later- David talks about this in the Psalms. Yes, yep. Uh, David talks about this in the Psalms. Um, the concept of Abraham's bosom. We're about to get, yeah. Also, um, which we'll, I'm pretty sure we'll talk about that later if we have time. Um, it's, that develops as a subset of Shaol. So Abraham's bosom is inside Shaol. This is my understanding. Um, is inside Shaol, but is a subset, and there is a chasm that divides, um, is the general thought process. Um, this is talked about um, in Gospel of Luke, I think chapter 16, a parable of uh, the dead man, Lazarus, and the rich man. Um, and so this, uh, whether or not you want to read that as an, an actual reality or um, just the cultural understanding of the time that influenced certain perspectives in the Old Testament. Um, you know, that is, I think, for us all to decide and discuss about. Um, but what I do think is interesting um, is that it doesn't necessarily have to be, doesn't have to be true in, in any real sense. Um, yeah, I think a lot of the ways that it is used is a literary image to convey meaning to people that doesn't necessarily have to do with any actual reality. Um, it's, it's a lot like um, the ways the prophets will talk about fire and eternal fire and the maggots eating away at people. Um, again, that, you know, Jesus references that. I think it's in Isaiah. Um, and so is this being used as an example of just God's judgment in general, or is this being used as, um, as a way of describing a reality? I don't know. Um, but I think that's a question that's well worth asking, and both of those things can be true at once. And I think it's important to note that that does not match up with our um, conception of hell. And I don't even really think it ma matches up super neatly with our conception of purgatory either. Mm -hmm. um so yeah all right let's move on to um the section on tartarus which you uh, mentioned but i will read read from here um just for confirmation tartarus a word that appears only once in the entire bible second peter 2 4 is defined by bible scholars as the deep abyss of hades the deepest abyss of hades Admittedly, we don't know much about that deep abyss, except that as part of Hades, it too is probably temporary, which is like we will get into this. In Revelation 20 is elongating that, right? That they will get thrown into the lake of fire. All right. This is where it gets interesting. I'll read maybe two more paragraphs and I'll stop. Yeah. Gehenna is the New Testament word for the permanent place of the dead used by Jesus Christ himself 11 times. I, anyway, 
James also uses the word in James 3.6 of Hebrew origin of the word valley and Hamon. Gehenna refers to the valley of Hamon, just outside Jerusalem, with, where the refuse of the city was dumped. It is characterized of this valley that a fire was continuously burning there. Many see this as a perfect characterist, characterization of hell, a place where the fire is not quenched, Mark 9.48. Yeah. Otherwise known as the lake of fire. I think they're different things. We'll get there. Revelation 2014. The King James Version of the Bible translates all of these words. Here's, here's where we get to our thing. The King James Bible translates all of these words. Sheol, Sheol, Hades, Gehenna, Tartarus. They're all used as the same word in King James. Hell. Yeah. This leads readers to assume that they refer to the same place when actually they do not. Several modern, modern Bible versions have clearly distinguished the differences. The New American Standard Bible, for instance, calls the temporary places Sheol or Hades and the final places of the dead, Hell. Oh. Uh, yeah, I'll stop there, actually. I would sooner, just a note on translation, I would sooner have translators stop using the term hell altogether because I think it's a semantically overloaded term because the King James translated all of those different terms yes. into one word. And so I think um, it we got the reversal of the normal case, whereas most of the time you have multiple words in English that can be used to refer to a Hebrew word. Mm -hmm. You have multiple words in Hebrew being used to refer mm -hmm. to one or being translated into one English word. And so it's become incredibly complex for needless reasons. Well, maybe not needless, but. Okay, um, going on from here, I think. Okay. One note I will just. Go ahead. Make. I'm gonna read from Revelation after this. Well, actually re read that first then and then. Okay. It was, it was referenced here in, in the thing I just read. Uh, where is it? Aha. As. Ah, yes. Um, here's the quotation from LaHaye. Many see this as a perfect characterization of hell, Gehenna, a place where the fire is not quenched, otherwise known as the lake of fire. Uh, I don't think those are the same thing, as we will see here. Um, even the words that are translated in English, in the ESV at least, don't treat those as the same thing. Um, uh, so here we go. I'll read Revelation 20, 11 through 15, the, the paragraph that splits this in ESV. This is part of John's vision. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea, we talked about this last week, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, what is interesting here? Um, 
two books are open, the book of life and some other book, we can infer from this passage, a book of the deeds of those who are being judged. Because more than once it says, and they were judged by what was written in the book, the book of deeds. And if they weren't found in the book of life, the other book, then they were thrown into the lake of fire. Yeah. There's that. Okay. Um, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, the book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in the book. Um, and the sea gave up its dead um, who, were, who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. So there's three places, apparently, that John has seen the dead come from. Well, and I would argue that the sea is probably the image of Shaol. That's probably yes. Yes. here. Uh, because of the uh, the way that it's been talked about in the entire Old Testament, the Hebrew so Bible. Sheol, death, and Hades all give up the dead. This yeah. is about the this judgment. This is about the second judgment yeah. prior to the recreation of earth and heaven. Okay? Yeah. Um, that's the context here for Revelation 20. What's super interesting is verses 14 and 15. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. This is why I do not equate hell and the lake of fire. Because Hades and Sheol and um, and death, whatever that is. But it says death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And yeah. the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Yeah. Right. All three of them give up their dead again. Death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So the lake of fire is equivocated with the second death. Yeah. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So, so if the second death is the lake of fire, if your name isn't found in the book of life, then you're thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death. Yeah. How do you live forever if, if it is the second death and death and Hades are thrown away? Well, yeah. How do and you live? How do you live after that? You're you, gone. It doesn't. Um... Yeah, it, it doesn't make any sense. And I think there are other parts of Revelation that people can probably pull. Um, again, Revelation is not my expertise at this moment. No. But um, that, that could, they could try to make an argument around that. But the, the image that's being conjured here definitely implies a sense of destruction. And I'll say the image of fire in general implies destruction. Um, yeah. Chris Date makes the point that fire consumes and destroys and mm -hmm. for lack of a better term annihilates and so the the term olam eternity being used for the fire and not the thing the fire is destroying is pretty specific and then you have you know the description where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth and that mm -hmm. is just generally considered an idiom for um Gehenna, mm -hmm. uh, a way of referencing Gehenna. And so the place of fire where things place, were burned up. Yeah. The place of eternal fire where things were burned up. And it it wasn't fire because the things that were there burned always. It was fire because more fuel kept being added continuously and mm -hmm. it just kept smoldering. Um, and so again, it's it's a lot more complicated than people want to make it. Yeah. And, and Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and it just doesn't, I, I don't see one easy answer 
at all. And I think the thing that gets closest to it is this idea of degeneration. Yeah. And here's my thing, and this this can lead into the analogy we're going to make. I'm kind of scared being up all places, but I think yeah. they're they're getting somewhere. Uh, yeah. Like I said earlier, whether you posit, and I would believe this, a place where the dead who are not in Christ now reside, are they degenerating there now? Poss- very possible. Even if you don't posit a annihilation of death being thrown into the lake of fire, of whoever gets thrown into the lake of fire still living and experiencing torment, I would say even at the picture of you, even at the level of you taking the pictures as literal, which is what you're doing, then fire doing what it does to bodies is going to cause a degeneration. Yeah. Right? It's -hmm. going to make it something that it wasn't originally. Yeah. It's going to burn it up. It's going to smolder it. It's going to, um, and again, if you're going to posit, no, that happens forever for them, well, then they have to have some access to eternal life. Otherwise, they can't. Yeah. Um, so I would, e- I would either posit that what happens is, this is my conception at the moment, people who are not a part of God's kingdom now are in a, some place like Hades, and they are degenerating, probably, or they are staying the same. Yeah. Um, at the point of the second resurrection i would say that everyone who's rise who's raised and then those who are judged who are whose names are not found in the book of life to use the language of revelation 20 are thrown into the lake of fire if i'm staying biblically consistent and death is also swallowed up so then they don't have access to the tree of life and death is gone so then they disintegrate i'm cool with that or i'm cool with after they get thrown into the lake of fire, there's a point in time where they, as Lewis is talking about in Great Divorce, are degenerating so much so because they are not near the image. They are not near God. They are no longer wanting to be in his image. They are no longer wanting to be conformed to Christ. Yeah. They're becoming less and less human, therefore, and they don't have access to the tree of life. So they would at some point degenerate so much that they are either unrecognizable forever, which is, I, I guess I'm okay with, yeah. Or that they they degenerate so much that the them that was there at one point no longer exists, which I would say then they don't exist. So yeah. then they would be annihilated. Yeah. Um, that I, that's how I've construed it at this point. That that would be my view. Yeah. I think that that makes a lot of coherent logical sense and flows really well, and it uses the text in genuine and authentic ways. Um, the The only thing that I don't exactly know what to do with is this image of um, eternal torment that is thrown around, I I think, a lot more sparingly than people believe. Mm -hmm. Um, And and yeah, so I don't don't really know what to do with that. The Um, biggest, yeah, as you're saying, the biggest hurdle to this is what's considered eternal torment. And it's, I'll read the verse. It's Matthew. So I don't know what to do with this verse. Yeah. All honesty. This is Jesus talking about the final judgment. Yeah. Um, I will just read. It's it's uh, the, um, what, what I'm, the specific verse is verse 46. I'll start in verse 41. Yeah. It says, this is the, the separation of the sheep and the goats. 
which again is it's just an, it's an analogous way to look at what's going to happen. So it's like how much do we again it's pictures, images, analogies. Yeah. How much of it is a picture? How much of it is a representation? How much of it is to be taken as real? This is the problem of doing exegesis of doing hermeneutics, all of the above. But Jesus says this, and like I said, I, if I'm going to take anything in scripture the most serious, it is the words of Jesus. So I have issue here. Issue with my view, I should say. Then he will say to those, to quote 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I, and we could read more in Revelation 21 about the lake of fire being prepared for the devil and his angels. But anyway, continue. Verse 42, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will ask, they will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the, one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And the problem here is that the same Greek word for eternal is used in both cases, eternal punishment and yeah. eternal life. This yeah. is the biggest issue to my view that I can see. Yeah. Uh, and it's straight out of the mouth of Jesus. So like yeah. even more so. Yeah, um, like earlier if it came, that's the most central part of the text for you. So yeah. Um, also, but also, like like the parable of Lazarus, whatever affects their eternal destiny is also directly tied to their treatment of people on earth. Yeah. Which I think super, we, we never talk about that, but okay, fine. Right. It's like straight out of the mouth of Jesus, but we never discuss it. Um, and and I, if someone really wants to nail you down on that, that's where I would go is say, okay, well, that punishment in the context is being explicitly levied against so, like, where's this whole faith without work, saved by grace? Like, then you, then you, you, I mean, I, I don't want to get into apologetics for your view necessarily, but the burden of proof is on them, right, at that point, to explain away that whole realm of their theology. Yeah. Um, they have to deal with if they want to use that the way they want to use it. And I'm not necessarily even saying that that that's a bad thing or an inaccurate view. But what I'm saying is like, then they have some tension they have to deal with too. Uh, if this yeah. text is to be used in that way. So the tension yeah. goes both ways. It just mm -hmm. does. Um, yeah. And this is like, as you said that I, I was just thinking, man, if you have a, uh, a very Paulinian um, saved. And again, this was my distinction in our original conversation was, I don't think works is what saves you. Works is what makes you Christian. But then you can argue, is there, again, in this degeneration view, like, is there a way in which you don't act like one so long that you aren't one anymore? Yeah. I don't know if I want to take it like that, but it's just a question worth asking. Yeah. Um, but my point is that Jesus creates more problems for the grace alone view than Paul. Yeah. Which is really interesting. Yeah. Just 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 read just read the Sermon on the Mount. Like, yeah. Dude, I, well, like I passages like this. I'm like, dude, I like 
Well, and, and, and in Revelation, they're judged by their actions. Yeah. Not just in the book of life. Yeah. Um, and what I think is so interesting and somewhat uh, comical almost is the, the fact that we, we don't have a lot of answers. Mm-hmm. We really don't. And we in the West specifically want to make the Bible a book of answers. Yeah. But I think more realistically, it's a book of questions. And we don't leave space for people to wrestle with questions like this. And we don't leave people space to disagree with us about things like this normally um, within the church. And so, I don't know. I think you have, um, specifically with this Pirates of the Caribbean analogy that I guess we got to get to. We haven't more. said yet, so. Uh, is, I, I, I'll, you want me to just go and give it? Yeah, go for okay, it. Okay, and then you can, you can make your comment. We don't have too much longer anyway. Yeah. Uh, so my Pirates of the Caribbean analogy, me and John, I think, collectively came up with this we we rewatched the movies recently me john and my roommate matt uh, had a very enjoyable time watching the trilogy the trilogy which is like on, the only ones worth watch rewatching i think and i think they're fantastic i think they definitely hold up I love um that. very 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 good and johnny depp is just justice for johnny by the way um but anyway uh if yeah if anyone gets that please uh please let me know <laughs> uh so but but part of the image that I'm drawing from here that I think is very helpful in this degenerative degenerative idea of hell, whether you construe it as hell currently or as hell after the um, resurrection of the dead, I think either way works as I described in my view earlier. But it's in the third movie specifically that you see this the most, um, especially with Bootstrap Bill. Yeah. So you have Davy Jones and you have the Flying Dutchman. That's the ship of Davy Jones. And Davy Jones is the one who's supposed to look after those souls of men or souls and bodies, apparently, because they're embodied people, interestingly enough, (laughs) of sailors who die at sea, right? He's supposed to transport them to the afterlife or whatever. This is part of the mythology and the the third movie that gets played with the most. But what you see in, in the second one and more so in the third one is what the condition of those who are on the flying Dutchman is like, right? They are, they are, um, they are chained to servitude at some level at, on the ship for X amount of years, depending on, I think their lives. (laughs) So funny enough, they're very much playing with biblical, like hell ideas. Uh, and what in the depictions of the sailors, they're on the flying Dutchman under Davy Jones, specifically as an octopus in form or octopus man, whatever, is that the more they're on the ship, the more they degenerate into the ship, quite literally. Yeah. Right? And this is the refrain of Bootstrap Bill, is part of the crew, part of the ship, part of the crew, part of the ship. You see you know, characters, of, and I'm, if I post some, I might post some photos of this to help, um, but you see you know, characters with half of a wheel on their back, or you know, part of their face is conformed to this certain section of the ship deck where they you know, sink into and then inhabit quite literally as part of the ship, part of the crew as a person who runs it and part of the ship. Um, They degenerate quite literally into a part of the ship. You see this with Jack's character as well in the third story when there's many versions of him who he talks to because he's going crazy uh, and he's in, you know, locked up in the hole of of, uh, the flying Dutchman. And then he like loses the brain and there's you know, funny joke about that. But 
anyway, I've just found this picture that is, I think, pristinely painted in parts of the Caribbean for an idea of Davy Jones, for the idea of hell, for the idea of Sheol, possibly. Um, but all of the men that seem to be there are pirates, so that's quite interesting. Um, I'm not saying this is a wholehearted you know, idea to parallel it in, in every aspect. Yeah. But I think the degenerative nature of what's going on in, in um, the Flying Dutchman or on the Flying Dutchman is very helpful, right? As they are on the ship longer, as they're in the crew longer, as they become more of what they were in their first life, right? Then they degenerate to become less and less like sailors, less and less human, and they become part of Look. And what I think is also sort of interesting that I haven't thought a whole lot about is that they did this in order to escape death, right? Mm. It was it was something they did as an escape plan that then became the, their very demise. Mm. And so, I mean, that's Davy Jones' whole thing is, do you fear death? That's his question. And, and you have that guy with the rosary who's shaking. Yeah. And and he says no, and they just ax his head and throw him into the water um, because he's not willing to conform to become part of the crew and part of the ship. Mm -hmm. He's not willing to become the miasmatic embodiment of sin. And so he, he doesn't fit in, in this conception of hell. And so there, there may be some soteriological things there. Maybe. But yeah, I, I think it's a great way of framing this whole ideology. Yeah. I, I just find it a very helpful image. Very like, again, a very story image that kind of helps turn the lens mm -hmm. to see this in a different way. And I think, yeah, the, the degenerative aspect of it is very interesting in the way that's visually represented is very helpful in this beast-like state Lewis plays with this idea a little bit in, in Narnia, right? Yeah. When he creates the talking beast, he says, be careful. This is in Magician's Nephew. He says, be careful how you, how you conduct yourselves because you could degenerate and become like a beast that isn't able to talk. Yeah. I think it's super, yeah. like the same idea is going on here at the Flying Dutchman. Yeah. Well, and, and with the Flying Dutchman thing, again, in Bootstrap Bill, he becomes fixated on a few basic things, right? And that's all that you see did. him literally losing his mind yeah. in the third. Literally, he loses who he is mm -hmm. and becomes fixated on just a few things. And the whole thing, the whole motivation for Will throughout the entire movie is I have to hurry up or my dad is going to become a permanent part of the ship. Mm -hmm. We'll never be able to be set free again. Mm -hmm. And so it, there's this, high stake for him that like i need to get this done before my dad doesn't exist anymore and not because he stopped existing but because he melded into something else yes yeah i'll, I'll just mixing that idea of the blind dutchman and um baby jones with I'll just read this paragraph again, this quote from Lewis. I think that the two mix very well. Lewis says, if in fact Christianity is true, hell is precisely the correct technical term for it. 
Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. But you are still distinct from it, part of the crew. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer do so, part of the ship. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood lost to the ship or even to enjoy it. But it is just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. Like the ship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, time's about up for us. Uh, I guess that was that was a productive conversation. That was fun. I did a lot of the talking, which is kind of annoying. Um, Fine. I enjoyed it. That was really good. So, yeah. Uh, I'm a heretic now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm right there with you. But... Uh, yeah. But I will link below in, in the description um some of those things i used for reference for my views of sin i will link tim's uh sermon on hell um i will link chris what's his name uh date chris date uh yeah some of his content the conversation i listened to earlier uh that he has on remnant radio um i would just create references for you guys to know that i'm stealing these a and i'm okay with that but i'm also not just making it up because it sound cool or it's hip or like i'm trying to be uh you know adversarial to traditionalism uh again i just i just see better answers from the text for some of these questions i've been having for a long time and that was the point of today was to say here's a lot of my questions here's some of the conclusions i've been drawing i'm not fully convinced these aren't in my you know top two concentric circles um but they how we view some of those things affect the view of this which is why I kept making reference again and again to the centrality of the literal physical resurrection of Jesus. That seems to be Paul's ultimate point of contention in first Corinthians 15. And I think it is ultimately essential to the reality of Christianity. Uh, so there we go. Yeah. Yep. Any closing, closing comments? Well, I would just say that I think um, anyone who listens to this should just understand that you and I are just, two somewhat well-educated dudes trying to figure crap out yeah and like we're not saying that this is the way that it is we're just saying that in everything that we've seen this makes the most sense Mm -hmm. and um and i'm not even sure that i would say that although i definitely lean in this direction um i just there i do have some still some crucial questions i think i need to check box before i make this my theology yeah but those questions are far smaller than i think the questions that this ideology answers for me Um, and yeah we didn't talk at all about the sleep metaphor paul used again in first Corinthians 15 which i think is very interesting but again at a later date we can discuss yeah um yeah hell and sin on the belfast podcast um thank you guys very much for listening and daniel and i look together we'll probably see you in the next one King Connie's yeah. look out, tell him, look out for my worldview. Cloudy when you sinking, got you thinking it's a whirlpool. Caesar in your pockets, you can't see who's in your pockets. But Stevie's inner visions touch your eyes and make the world move. Wifey bob her head and make her curls move. Crown jewel is character, and this ain't immortality with fairy dust. Never land, never say I never gave you hands. If I can't give them back, then you look like the lesser.